0: episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. That's right, Pete Mento's own trade consulting firm. I mean, it only took me 25 years, but better late than never. Mento LLC is a trade consulting and global economics firm that specializes in the recovery, elimination, and reduction of global tariffs and value-added tax. We also help clients with matters of global trade compliance and cargo security. So if you need help with anything ranging from mock audits to duty drawback for sale for export, or just trying to find ways to deal with these dastardly 301 tariffs, reach out. You can find me at pete.mento at mentollc.com. Again, that's pete.mento at mentollc.com, or just give us a call at 978-317-3250. Mento LLC. From Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. It's the Trade Geek Podcast, and I am Pete Mento, your Trade Geek, and thank you all again for joining me. Boy, do I have a fun one for you today. You know, the election is, uh, election day is over, but the machinations and frustrations of the U.S. presidential election keep on going. And as I sit here and I watch the national temper tantrum that is the picking of our chief executive, I'm reminded of the last time that we did this and the number of people who were involved that were pretty upset about the meddling of the former Soviet Union in our electoral process, as they should be, cyber, baby, cyber using computers and using networking and using all them doodads to wreak havoc in the world i still remember oh yeah we're, t- we're going to the Wayback machine kids let's get funky with it might want to pour yourself a drink or take some of that space candy in the back of the fridge that uh you forgot to go all the way through on that bachelor party last year way back machine kids i remember the first time i got to play with a computer It was in my dad's office uh, for his job in Texas. And I broke it. I broke it. I broke the hell out of it. I put something into the floppy drive, which, by the way, kids, floppy drives are how we used to put uh, applications onto uh, computers back in the day. I believe I shoved a aluminum ashtray in it and I broke it. And it cost a great deal of money to fix, and the accounting system was on it. And I got into what can be best described as a tremendous amount of trouble. And a time when vetting out punishment in my home generally resulted in um, what the kids today would call an ass whooping. My next relationship with the computer was a lot better. I had a, a really good friend named Mike Warren. Who had a, a computer from Radio Shack? I think he and his brother might have built it. And I also had a neighbor named Ty Cook, whose dad was a, a teacher, and I believe was also a computer teacher. I was a lot younger, and we would um, Mike would would do basic programming. You know, he would type in the lines of code, and, and things would come up on the TV. And I just thought that was the coolest. I didn't have the patience or the insight or the smarts to do that kind of stuff, but he did. And, you know, he would make characters and things appear and um, he could create calculators and stuff. It it wasn't so much that it was magic. It was just that, you know, here's, here's this machine that we can automate things with. And I thought that was so cool. And my friend Ty, his dad had games. Really cool stuff. You know, most of them, the graphics of which today kids would laugh at, but they were cool games to me. And a lot of them were adventure-based or narrative-based, and I really thought they were neat. And computers really didn't come back into my life in any way important until college when I started using word processors to do all of my my work for school because I am a terrible speller and I'm uh, I'm not that very good at typing, believe it or not. For a guy who's a writer, I'm not a very good typist. So we had a couple of Macs at Maine Maritime Academy, and I would go up there and I would I would use the Macs pretty often to write papers and to just, you know, knock out my work. I didn't have enough money to own a computer. They were very expensive. And um, the first time that that cyber and hacking and all that really touched my life in a meaningful way was when my identity was was stolen and I had to go through all of that, you know, and that happened... In 2005, so relatively early. But I've been dealing with this because I I always remember that great 80s movie, you know, War Games, with Matthew Broderick. Um, Was it Elizabeth Shue was the girlfriend? I don't remember who the girlfriend was. Elizabeth Shue, oh man. She might be on the the Trade Geek Top 10 as far as, um, you know, Mrs. Trade Geek. But the... um, the, the movie always reminds me of what we thought computers could be. And I look at it now and I think how, how very juvenile, right? How adorable. Computers are so much more now. They run our lives. You are a cyberkinetic individual. You are a machine. I guarantee you that if you're not holding onto your phone, it's somewhere on your body or it's somewhere within 10 feet of you in this very second. The only thing left to do is to somehow embed it in your body the amount of anxiety that you feel if you don't have your phone with you is positively ridiculous. I mean, it's powerful. Just think about it right now. Like think about if you lost your phone, what would you do? You know, for most Americans, it sends a chill down your spine. I started saying to people not long ago in the cargo security and supply chain security world, it's only a matter of time before there's a major hack in the supply chain. And of course, about a year and a half later, One happened to ocean carriers, to air carriers, and it was pretty ugly and they continue to happen. And I continue to bang the gong. I continue to say that as we fly these supply chains by wire, if I were an enterprising bad guy, I would stop physically terrorizing this country and I would start electronically doing it. You lose a lot less jihadis that way, don't you? Well, I have a friend on the podcast today who I'm pretty excited for you to um, learn about and to listen to. He's a fascinating character. Um, Alex Uhanov, Captain Alex Uhanoff went to Bass Maritime Academy, which is the uh, rival school of Maine Maritime where I went. And Alex and I have a great relationship. When we, when we first met there was a lot of ribbing and back and forth because, I mean, let's face it, we went to rival schools, but my Roommate from the academy was his roommate when they were at Surface Warfare Officer School in Newport, Rhode Island for the Navy. And Alex and I really got to know each other very well once that uh, my friend Jack got married and I was the best man and Alex was a groomsman. Over time, our our shared affinity for both foreign relations and counterterrorism really began to uh, create a friendship, a professional friendship and a friendship beyond that. He took a very different tact. He became much more engaged in the military. Uh, he is a captain in the United States Reserve Navy Reserve. He is also a pilot, he's a merchant marine captain. And his consulting was very much focused on the impact of cyber in the supply chain from the operative supply chain, how it could affect ships, how it could affect ports, And nobody was really focusing on that, but Alex did. And I think he is a a tremendous example of what can happen to you when you find a hole in an entire industry and you decide to be hyper-focused in it. When you find something that really needs some attention and it's timely and it's hard to do and you put in the effort and you don't stop believing from the second that you start working on it that you're right. Because there were a lot of people who told him he was wrong. There were a lot of people who told him that he had no idea what he was talking about, that this wasn't going to be a revenue stream, this couldn't be an industry. And boy, were they wrong. And, you know, now whenever I see that a ship is you know, lost its ability to command itself underway, whenever a cargo crane stop working, whenever an airline suddenly goes black, you know, and nothing is working. My first phone call is to Alex. And I say, so what do you think, ransomware? He never gives me definitive answers because that's just not the way he is. He doesn't kiss and tell, but he lets me speculate on my own and learn what I can. Alex is one of those guys who, um, you know, I'd never say it to his face, but you can always depend on him, Uh, like Chuck, like a lot of the guys, Alan Gear at Microsoft, you know, um, Brad Elrod, Anthony Lemus at Facebook. There are guys in the security world that once you've shown them that you'll respect them and never let them down, They will move heaven and earth and put a fire hose to hell to make sure that they don't let you down. He's a great friend, and he's an amazing professional. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So uh, I guess without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Captain Alex Uhanoff from Moran Cyber. Hey, everybody. I'm excited to have a—and don't worry, we're not recording the video because there's going to be way too many goofy faces— (laughs) <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited to have a, uh, a perennial favorite on any of my speaking gigs. Uh, a very good friend of mine who I've gotten to know in such a roundabout way, Captain Alex Hanoff uh, with Moran, Cyber. I'll let him explain what it is he does now and um, how he ended up having such a bizarre career. But I know Alex because Alex was my roommate from Maine Maritime Academies. Was he a roommate or just your your classmate at school school? Classmate. Classmate. My and roommate. And roommate at surface warfare officer school in Newport, Rhode Island back in 1844, uh, so very long ago. And now uh, Alex is not only a captain in the Navy Reserve, uh, which is, for those of you who don't know, for those of us in the Merchant Marine ranks, a very difficult thing to have accomplished. Uh, it's a difficult thing, period. But for those of us in the MMR world, that's very hard. He is also a captain in the U.S. Merchant Marine. He is a pilot for uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Now, is that a federal pilot or a state pilot? Both. Both. Um, and he is a father of an accomplished swimmer and all-around great kid, as well as the uh, a father of two German shepherds, very goofy animals, and a husband to a very patient woman. Uh, Alex went to Mass Maritime Academy, which is the special education, special needs clown school of, of boat colleges and is the death rival of where I went to college, Maine Maritime Academy. And the fact that he and I have become such close friends is absurd. Um, in, in retrospect. So, Alex, thank you so much for deciding to be abused and beaten today on the Trade Geek podcast.
1: Hey, it goes both ways, man. Thanks for having me aboard, brother.
0: Absolutely. So, why don't you spend a, min- a couple minutes talking about what the mission of Moran Cyber is?
1: Yeah, thank you. So, the mission of Moran Cyber is to protect uh, commercial ships in marine terminals and cargo handling facilities from cyber threat. Um, this is our maritime workplace in our home. So when you think about seafarers, they're out there, they fight their own fires, they handle their own medical care at sea, they handle all their own situations because they're not near anyone else that can help them. And that's been the case since the beginning of time in seafaring. And um, cyber risk is just like all the other risks, you know, we. Um, We inspect our ships, our cargo holds, we we, uh, tap gauges on engines and we we plot navigation fixes and we look ahead and anticipate risk all the time as a matter of safety. These are best practices that have been in place again since the beginning of time of seafaring. And they've evolved over the years, over the centuries and millennia as technology has evolved, as the way that sailors sail ships and as the way that uh, ports now uh, operate Technology, and we've been through this time and again. We've been through the age of sail to the conversion of steam, and then the steam to motor, and now we're we're going into what many are calling the fourth industrial revolution, which is really the connection of 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 all things. Um, and what makes maritime cyber special is the confluence of the physical maritime domain with the cyberspace. And where it really is the epicenter, the center of gravity of this for Marathon is that our physical systems, ships, the largest moving objects in the world with engines, three, four story engines, navigation systems, cargo systems that that move the largest moving objects in the world that carry 90% of the world's freight in and out of the, the confluences, which we call our ports. These are very, very critical places to focus on with cyber. And it happens just to be our workplace and our home. And this is what we love. It's our passion. And um, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing way to learn our industry. I thought I knew something about industry after 27 years in it. And I, I just feel like a total novice now. I've got,
0: I've got three really specific questions. Um, and they're, they're so different. So the, the first one is how did you end up? This is such a narrow, Cyber's become massive. You know, we've got a lot of young people all over the country right now that are focusing on cybersecurity as a career and your, your, it's almost boutique, right? Your area of cyber is so narrow, so incredibly important, but so narrow. How did you end up getting involved in that part of the business?
1: I like to tell people that I just bumbled into it. Um, there was no special sauce that went into this. Um, you know, it's timing is everything. So in 2010, there was this downturn in international shipping, which affected my piloting business. I couldn't pilot full-time anymore. And um, um, so I, I maintained uh, um, uh, my, my pilot work in a part-time capacity, and I got involved in operations research and in, in and around navigation safety. Search, kind of like test pilot, if you will, but for maritime. Um, and um, in two thousand and early in two thousand and fourteen, project came came to me in, 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 in the form of a hypothesis from an industry stakeholder, which was: it is possible. Is it possible that navigation safety could be compromised by a cyber attack? So
0: Back up, right? When you say that. In English, is it possible that a vessel underway could be overtaken through a cyber attack?
1: That's right. Okay. So, um, you know, now look, at that time, I knew absolutely goose egg about cyber. Zero. Nothing. You know, you know, IT guy, deal with it. Um, and you know what? Not uncommon for the rest, for much of the, of the world's workforce. We relied on IT people to handle things. That was their thing, different lexicon, different world. What was I wrong and what did I learn? And I learned quick and um, you know, I found that the, the way the hypothesis was presented to me was compelling enough to say, you know, let's grab our work gloves and our flashlight and let's go take a look like we do on ships, you know? Hmm. And so we put a team together and we thought about it. Could we do it in simulator first? Um, we tried it. The code is different in equipment that's used in simulation than it is in real life. Okay. So it's simulated. It's pretend. It's not the real operating mm-hmm. systems. So we, we found a ship owner that said, why don't I loan you my ship? Don't break it.
0: <laughs> loan you my ship?
1: Yes. So over a three day period, we looked at a very sophisticated modern vessel navigations that were integrated with the propulsion system. Um, we went through the vessel and the, and the results were astounding. And this, now this is coming from a guy that not know, knew nothing about cyber and IT and anything at that time. How we, what we did is we built a team through our networks. We found um, some fellows who stood up the first Navy red team in cybersecurity They had since retired and formed their own company and a veteran-owned small business on the East Coast. And we formed a a cross-functional team of mariners and and cybersecurity red team people. And we approached it from an adversary perspective. The vessel owner said, you can can take this information, anonymize it, and um, do good things with this. Make an impact. we were then introduced to the CEO of a, mer- of a major flag state registry, uh, as well as the CEO um, of the largest ship owners association in the world. And they said, we want you to do more of these ships. Expand your sample set. Now, this is a research project. This wasn't consulting or anything like that. This was, is this true? Yes or no? And It was. So what we wanted to see was a preponderance and Um, and to expand it from there. And we did, we received industry's first grant um, to do this work. The next thing I found out was congratulations, you're coming to Hamburg, Germany, you're going to speak at our our, uh, international uh, annual conference for all the ship owners. So it was out of the pot, into the fire, um, terrifying um, because, you know, here we are as, as professionals been mariners who just want to do the right thing. You know, we just want, we're not here to make a buck. You know, obviously we want to pay for our research. Um, you know, we had a business to run, but really the focus was on proving or disproving a hypothesis. And it all started from research and it all started from evidence. And what we found were other ship owners coming to us to say, we'd like to work with you. Um, and, and so it went and then Moran picked me up in twenty seventeen and say we want you to commercialize this. My very first day at Moran was the not Petya attack on MERS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the phone was ringing. like we need to set up a call and different ship owners and us work together and and um, so that's how it all started.
0: Yeah. And when I when I talk about this is gonna leave my other two questions. Whenever I talk to people about you, I say there's oh I'm getting a little echo back there. I say um, there's the side of what, what Alex does which is um, very different. So don't think that Alex is talking about managing the, um, the world of cyber like you're, you're going to make sure Windows works on your computers. And this is where the next two questions come from. He's worried about if, if a ship can be compromised, the actual maritime, the vessel compromised and then he's worried about the port infrastructure, okay? So here's my next two questions. Um, The people who listen to this podcast are generally in the freight forwarding community or they are consumers of logistics, so they are importers and exporters. How concerned should they be of this issue? That's question number one. And then question number two, of the two areas of expertise that you work in, being vessels and then port infrastructure, which one do you think would be the most dangerous to global commerce?
1: Great questions. So I'm gonna answer the second question first, which is ports, in our opinion, um, would have the greatest impact, marine cargo handling facilities. Why would you say that? Uh, Because, they are the confluence of multi modes of transport and processes and technologies. Each terminal is its own living thing, its own system For a ship. That's an isolate. That that can be an isolated business platform. It is an appendage. Each ship is an appendage of, of multiple companies, but a port is, is, is in a physical unmovable geographic location with, with its infrastructure that is, that is fixed and tied to, Secondary, third, fourth, fifth levels of logistics and relationships, and beyond into the hinterlands. So it's like uh, I always think of the French word "la porte," the door. It's 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 open as it should be for commerce. It needs to be, um, but we're only as strong as our weakest link, you know. And it's it's very difficult to um, to secure everything. So. Backing up a little bit, how we got involved in ports was we learned some things on container ships, on some of our vessel assessments, particularly in how data is transferred from shore to ship. In um, coming from the mariner standpoint, um, what if corrupted data was somehow ingested or into the loading computers and, and the load plans? What would do that to the vessel? So we looked at lots of different combinations and, and studied the impacts there. But it was clear to us at the time, which was five and six years ago, that the processes of exchanging data were very insecure. Uh, How we knew this was very simple. The cargo planner came onto a ship that we were um, um, assessing one day and he he pulled out a pocket full of thumb drives because he had just walked down the pier and visited three other container ships and brought them their stow plans and exchanged files on thumb drives and they were in a pocket. So uh, to us, we were, you know, Obviously, everybody knows the vulnerability there. So um, that gave us great cause for concern. And we were also uh, following that just miraculously, we were, we were asked by a terminal to do an assessment. Um, and what we learned from that um, just expanded. Other terminals said, do the same thing here. And then in, in the meantime, uh, in the last, uh, over the last two years, we had just completed one of the Probably the largest cybersecurity assessment for multiple terminals in the consortium ever done in the United States. There were several terminals, and they all got together and they said, not only what's the what, what are our vulnerabilities, but what would be the impact of our terminal, but also the whole port. So um, you can imagine uh, the significance of of that project, and and uh, I can't I can't tell you how. Amazing it was as an experience, um, especially when a teammate says to me, Alex, I just want to thank you for being on the team because as an American, this is important.
0: Yeah. And then for that first question, how concerned should the freight consumer community be about these issues?
1: Should be very concerned. We gave a presentation earlier this week, as you know, where we're all part of a larger global supply chain family. We're our businesses. And the integration of technology with our processes is in that maturity of that integration and that trust, right? So um, if you're running a business and you have a particular third-party application, that's really, really good and it helps you be efficient and you have visibility of your, of your business, um, but you're connected, right? Um, those are the types of things that, that – um, are, are cause for or very high scrutiny because right now, even in the COVID environment where everyone is working from remote um, and the complexities of the threats uh, that are out there are, are really too much for the workforce to handle. And that's why we say we've, we've been in a, in a danger of oversimplifying how to deal with the threat. We, we have taken the approach that with forwarding companies, with, facility operators with shipping companies. One of the biggest commonalities is that they have little or no cybersecurity budget or or leadership, um, and their IT department would likely wear that as a hat and already be over understaffed and under resourced. So, we're saying none of none of those threats belong. Um, slam the door, right? But it's very difficult. And I think it's a very significant concern for forwarders, particularly because of the nature of the threats that are out there.
0: Now, shifting gears just a little bit, the, um, the maritime environment is dangerous enough to begin with. You know, is, are, are you shoveling against the tide here? Or is this being really embraced globally do you see this as something that people are moving on, or are we just really in the beginnings of trying to manage this?
1: It's a little bit of the last two. I don't believe we're shoveling against the tide I think we're we're climbing a steep hill um, but the industry the, the direction of industry is digitalization um, that is very clear um, why the hill is steep is that this is a huge change in the way businesses will operate uh, from what they from where how they've been operating, um, but we have seen the change. We have seen companies evolve and make that jump, and they're doing a great job. It is not easy. It's very, very hard. It's a steep climb. It's a steeper climb for them than it is for us. Um, and it's important because if you're running, if you're running a business, number one, uh, that is a port facility or a shipping company, safety is a culture. And the changes have already happened on the policy side. Um, The IMO is requiring cyber risk management to be part of the safety management system starting this January. So that's already happening. The needle's moving on it. And the Coast Guard has already released its work instructions to its inspectors for inspecting Maritime Transportation Security Act uh, regulated facilities, MTSA regulated facilities. So they're expecting to see uh, improvement and also, you know, a commitment towards uh, understanding what vulnerabilities are and 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 plans to to protect one's own businesses.
0: So go back to eighty-eight, eighty-nine. I oh, mean, you got to turn down your volume a little bit for me. My feedback yeah. here: if you go back to eighty-eight, eighty-nine, when you and I were young midshipmen, fourth class, sailing with Lord Nelson. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the digital environment like back then, late 80s? Remember,
1: we used to wait every 108 minutes for the satellite to pass to <laughs> get a sat nav fix. That was like the technological rage. And then GPS came in right after that. Um, and I remember it well because GPS was a big feature in the desert storm and precision guided weapons and the TV and everything. And, and as a college student at sea, the, all these things were impressionable. Um, while at the same time we were working and toiling and learning celestial navigation so that we, we could graduate in, you know strong grades and know our craft. So it was, um, that was like the thing that was happening. And then also the, 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 the use of automatic radar plotting aids uh, versus scope head plotting um, for, for radar navigation and collision avoidance, that was also, you know, very much a piece, um, and a change, but you know, these things happen slowly and young people, we kind of, we like this, this technology stuff. We like that change. It's fascinating to do our job. Um, yeah, it seems like a long time ago, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Cause you, you look at it now, it's, it's night and date, man. I was just at the Acad- main marathon Academy, you know, the Academy, unlike the
1: Weren't they founded after Mass Maritime?
0: I just you know. Uh, you learn you learn from your mistakes. So, <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, I was up there. A friend of mine's son is considering going to school up there to be an engineer because he's a lot smarter than me. Um, and I gotta tell you, <laughs> these uh these kids that go to school up there now are so much smarter than we were. If, I I know that we're thinking back a long time, but I went to school mostly with, with um one of two classes of, of high school graduates. You had guys that tinkered a lot, who's a, a lot of guys who came off of lobster boats. I had a lot of guys who were strong B students that wanted to serve their country. A lot of guys that grew up in New England that saw dudes that worked on ships and made good money and thought they'd figure it out, right? These kids I meet now that go to these maritime schools are very strong technically have been you know doing robotics clubs and they blow me away. I, and I don't know if you thought it was different, but academies felt like the, the Island of Misfit Toys when we were kids. It didn't feel like a place where the best and brightest end up going to school for four years.
1: I, I, um, I, in my observation over the last several years, actually, I've noticed that the academy students, whether they come from Kings Point or from the state academies, also, are 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 more mature than I certainly was um, during my time at, at Mass Maritime Academy, also known as Cape Cod College of Nautical Knowledge. Um, we, uh, you know, there is there is quite a bit of, of maturity there, um, and I also know that they they they're techni- technically different than we were, um, and I've seen that in the workforce at sea and as a pilot. Um, where we have three generations working, you know, on ships and they use technology differently or they think differently or they, they have to be trained differently. Um, and the common, a common statement I hear from senior captains birth, you know, in an observation of younger generations that they've always got their face in the screen. They never look out the window. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's in, you know, between that and then having gone to grad school with the Naval War College with young officers and me being a senior person in there, I also see their the value of the perception that they have. Uh, they, they they think in, in brilliant ways and other ways that I never thought of. So um there's clearly uh, there's clearly an opportunity for maritime education institutions to to jump on this. I think they're behind in terms of jumping on preparing a workforce for the digital environment. Um I think that's really the, where they need to spend a lot of focus is um, yes, the traditional is extremely important and always will be um, but there needs to be a focus on this and I don't know exactly what their strategies are right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I joke uh, a great deal. Um,